have your Bibles, go to the book of Matthew. We are going verse by verse through the entire book of Matthew as we did other books in the Bible in the last three years or two years we've been here. And we'll continue to do that as God allows us. However, beginning next Sunday uh, up until Easter, we'll be looking at the Easter story. So we'll take a, a moment away from Matthew and we'll be looking at the Easter story as we prepare for Easter. We will have Good Friday services as well. So look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, this morning. We're not going to finish the entire ninth chapter. We're just going to look at a couple of verses uh, in verse uh, 35, 36, those two verses. You know, you come to worship here and you hear Scripture read and prayer quite a bit in the mornings. And um, that's because we believe prayer and Scripture are important. And that's why we do it on Sunday morning. And I realize sometimes you come and you hear the scripture and you don't quite know always what it means and there's a lot of words and that's good. You don't want to know everything. I don't know everything. We come together because we grow in the knowledge of Christ and grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And just the men that read to you this morning, some of them have been Christians for 40 years, some less than 10 years, but they've grown in the knowledge of Jesus and that's what we do as a church together. Let's look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, and I do want to remind you that Matthew has a theme, and the theme is Jesus is a king, and it begins with the first chapter where the lineage is laid out, and then you have the visit of the Magi, that's what, you know, Matthew's the one gospel writer who talks about the wise men from the east come, and they give kings, they give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are gifts not fit for a baby, but fit for a king. And then you have John the Baptist who comes and proclaims the king is coming. He, he proclaims the coming of the great one. And then you have the baptism of Jesus, which is just, in a sense, the, the coronation or the announcement of the king. And then you have him sharing what his kingdom is in that amazing Sermon on the Mount as he describes what his kingdom looks like. And, and then we're going to see, as we've seen in the last few, moment, few Sundays, that he has displayed the power of his kingdom power of his kingdom over disorder as he's calmed the sea, as he's, as he's uh, cast out demons, uh, the power of, of his kingdom over disease, as we're going to see again this morning, and the power of his kingdom over death as he raises Jairus' daughter. So we've seen the power of his kingdom, and we've seen the reality of his kingdom, and he's expressed his kingdom, and now we're going to move in after Easter, as God allows, and we move into chapter 10, we're going to see him adding workers to his kingdom as he begins to pull together the disciples. And we'll go from there. But this morning, we're going to look at, in, in order to have some context, we're going to go back a little bit, and let's look at verse 32. I'd like to preach all last Sundays over again, but I won't. Remember last Sunday? Well, we got to go back. Okay, here's the deal. So, <laughs> Jesus is in Capernaum. I mean, this little town, little tiny narrow streets, Everything is packed, and the ruler of the synagogue who's opposed to him comes to him and lays down in front of him and worships Jesus. And the crowd is amazed, and as Jairus is worshiping Jesus, he says, My daughter has died. Will you come and heal her? We said before that come to Christ, it takes two things, a great need and, great, and, and a faith that he can do what he says. And if you don't have that sense of great need, you're not going to come to him which is why many people don't. That's why, you know, we gather in a church and go, how are these people in church? Because they're, the, they're not aware of the need they had. And until, until Jairus became aware, until his daughter died, something happened that he couldn't do anything about. No matter who he was in the synagogue, he couldn't raise his daughter. And all of a sudden, he realized Jesus could. I think God placed that faith in him, and he 
fell before Jesus. So the crowd is like, well, we're going to Jerry's house. He's going to raise a girl from the dead. And as they're trying to maneuver through the streets, this woman with issue of blood shows up. And she manages to squeeze in there and touch the hem of his garment. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples, everybody touched you. No, someone, I felt the power leave me. And it was her, this woman who had this hemorrhage for 12 years. And he healed her and he raised Jairus' daughter and then there were people, as he left the house, there were many people still following him. We're going to talk about the, the, the sicknesses in a minute. Many people, and these two blind men were following him, and they were hollering at him. Save us. Save us. They were hollering at him in, 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 a, in, a, in a very loud voice. As they were hollering, son of David. Not master, not teacher, not rabbi, but son of David. These blind men were acknowledging his divinity. He's the Messiah. Jesus finally gets to the house where he's staying, probably Peter's house, we don't know, and he goes inside, and these blind men follow him in there, and they're still hollering. So Jesus turns to them and he says, all right, do you really believe I can do this? We said before, and you're going to see again, Jesus did not require belief from everybody who he healed. He healed some people he didn't require belief from, and some were healed physically. But we believe these two individuals were not just healed physically, but they were, they were redeemed. They were regenerate. They, they came to a saving faith in Jesus. And so Jesus turns to them and asks them to confess their faith, because the Scripture says, if we are going to know Christ as our Savior, we must confess with our mouth. So he turns to these two blind men. He says, do you believe? And they say, yes. And he heals them. And then he says, don't go tell anybody. And so even though they've been converted, the first thing they do when they leave the house is they disobey the Lord. We all could identify with that, right? So, you know, it's wonderful that our righteousness isn't enough to get us to heaven. It never will be. We're not good enough, but Jesus' righteousness is. So immediately they fail. They go out there and they start telling people. And what happens? They actually bring someone, right? They bring this, this man who's deaf and can't speak. And, and Jesus, he is a demon, and Jesus cast out that demon. See, all these acts of of power he's showing and revealing, and then that's where we pick it up. So he's cast out the demon from this man, and now finally they get out of Capernaum. Capernaum's this little town by the Sea of Galilee. If you go to Israel today, you can go out there and visit it. The synagogue foundation is still there from the first century. You can stand on those steps of that first century synagogue and know that Jesus stood on those steps. It's a very moving experience, to be honest. But he leaves this little town of Capernaum, and the scripture picks it up there in verse 35. So that's everything that's happened. It's been a busy time in Capernaum. I mean, we just ran through it in five minutes. It's been a busy time. But verse 35, and Jesus went out throughout all the cities and villages. And we just kind of pass over that, right? Don't pass over that. The historian Josephus, the Roman historian Josephus, suggests that in this area of Galilee, there might have been as many as two million people, even maybe as many as three million, scattered all across, across uh, Judea. And up there in the, in the area of Galilee, all these little towns and villages were all over the place. Don't, don't lose sight of the fact that there was no place so small and so insignificant and so out of the way that Jesus just marked it off of his list. It's like, well, I'm not going to go there. There's not very many people there. It's way out of the way. We'll bypass Linwood, and we'll go on to Kansas City. Now, look, I work for the North American Mission Board. We have 33 sin cities. That's the largest cities in North America. We pour all kinds of resources into them. But my role is also to lead the rural ministry of Southern Baptists through the North American Mission Board. And there are 33 million Americans who live in rural America. 
And many places in rural America are like Linwood. The Methodist church here closed. There's very few churches right here in Linwood. It's the Church of Christ and us. That's it. And what if we'd have closed? What, what about the children who live here in Linwood? What about the young families who live? What about the older people who need help? What about the, that fact there? And the, the fact is that there's no place that the gospel is not to penetrate. There's no place off limits. We, we, we see the whole world as a great mission field. And wherever God has placed you, wherever you live, you don't live there by accident. If you're a child of God, he has divinely placed you there. And that is your mission field. And I don't care if it's in the heart of Manhattan, Kansas, or the heart of Manhattan, New York. It's important. I don't care if you're in the middle of the busiest city in North America or if you live out way out all by yourself and your nearest neighbor's miles away, every place needs the gospel. Oh, I wish I could unpack. I don't have time today. But I sat down with, with uh, Jim from Lenexa Baptist this week, and we dreamed and talked about what it would look like to, to plant new churches all across the Midwest in these little dying towns that need the gospel. And I thought of this text that Jesus went out to all the cities and the villages First, he was teaching in their synagogue, which he, was, he could have done. As a roaming uh, rabbi, he would have been, they came to the synagogue several times a week, and he would have gone there, and he was teaching in the synagogue and proclaiming again the gospel of the kingdom, his kingdom. Now, they were looking for an earthly kingdom, but obviously Jesus is talking about an eternal kingdom of which you and I are a part if we're children of God, if we've been redeemed by his blood. We are indeed part of his kingdom. And he's talking about this amazing kingdom that he is going to have that has come with him coming. So he's preaching the gospel. Which is all we have to preach. If you go to a church and you don't hear the gospel, I'm just going to tell you, go to another church. If you go to a church and they don't talk about Jesus, they don't talk about sin, they don't talk about salvation, just go to another church. Time's too short. I mean, we don't have time to sit around. The world is a really messed up place. People's lives are really hurting. All kinds of pressure. If you think we've got cultural headwinds now, just wait about five or ten years. Wait a couple of decades. The only message we have that matters is Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. And it's amazing how churches can spend so much time preaching everything but the gospel. There have been many times I've heard pastors, I've heard church people say, you know, someone will come in and preach and they'll say, I've never really heard that before. Never really heard all of that. We talk about moralism and live a good life and be a good husband. and be, Nothing wrong with that, but you can get that at Rotary for goodness sakes. We have the message of Jesus Christ. That the world is broken and sinful and enemies of God by nature. And because we've sinned, we are separated by his love, separated from his love, and we are objects of his wrath. How often do you hear that? Oh no, mankind, we like to we like to invent God as this great, wonderful, never judges anybody. Whatever I want to do is okay. And he's never gonna really, he's gonna love everybody in the end. And the reality is he does love everybody, but he is holy, and he must, he must punish sin or he ceases to be holy. And that, that's never going to be a message that resonates with the most of the world. It never is. But it's the only message we have, and it's the only message that's true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many? No one comes to the Father but by me. Do we realize how utterly hopeless we are without Jesus? I mean, utterly hopeless. But do you realize how much absolute hope we have? He's preaching the gospel. 
Now, not every church preaches it as well as others. I don't preach it very well some Sundays. Some Sundays I feel like it was a train wreck. I mean, we don't always do it well, but we try. We, we, we work at it. We realize what we have to offer is not ourselves. It's not our denomination. It's not our building. It's not, it is Jesus Christ. And everything we do is because of what he has done for us. So he preached the gospel of the kingdom. And then healing. Listen, look at this. We, do, don't, we, don't, we don't just pass over scriptures here at Linwood. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's what we preach. And then healing, listen, every, wow, marinate on that a minute. Every disease and every affliction. Look, the gospel writers record a few of the miracles of Jesus. To give us a glimpse of what he was doing. But listen to what John writes at the conclusion of his gospel. John chapter 21, 25. Now there are also so many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written down, the world itself could not contain the books that are written. Now I, That's not hyperbole. John is saying Jesus did so much that you couldn't even write it all down. I, you know, you're going to go away from here today, maybe for the first time, if you've been in church for 50 years, this may be the first time you hear this. If you're new in church, this is probably the first time you hear this. It's altogether likely that within a few months of Jesus' ministry in this part of, the, of, of Galilee, he probably nearly wiped out all disease. Healed them all. Imagine that. Okay, so why? That's the question. Why would, why would he heal so many people? Well, first and foremost, it was a sign of his divinity. As I said, when John's disciples came to, to Jesus' disciples and said, Look, things aren't going well for John over here. And we thought Jesus was coming like to overthrow the Romans and set up his rule in Jerusalem like David. And none of that has happened. So maybe we got it wrong. Is he the one or do we look for another? I love that pastor for 40 years i've been a christian for longer than that and there are still some sundays some days i wake up and i go is it really true and sometimes my life verse is lord i believe help my unbelief satan never leaves us alone with that with by, by leaving us alone he's always drilling in with doubts and fears and and causing us to look around and see things other than Jesus. Just listen, just like Simon Peter when he was walking on the water. As long as he looked at Jesus, things were fine. He started looking at his environment and he began to go under. Whenever I begin to wonder and doubt, it's not because I'm looking at Jesus. It's because I'm looking at the rest of my life and the rest of the world. So why did he? Well, when John's disciples came to Jesus' disciples and said, Is he the one or do we look for another? And Jesus said, Well, what do you do they not see? The sick are healed and the dead are raised. Listen, that was Jesus. That was his, that was, that was the way he had, that's the way the father had of revealing to the world at that time that Jesus was truly the Messiah. There were men going all over Israel preaching that they were the one, right? I'm the one. Follow me. I'll turn over the Romans. I'm the promised one. They were all over. None of them were healing people. None of them were raising the dead. This was an affirmation of Jesus' divinity. That's what it was. It showed his power. It showed his might to those around him. It could not be denied. It was his true calling. And it was 
a sign that what he said was true. What a powerful sign. What a powerful truth. Listen to me carefully. The gospel is powerful. Gospel is not just a story we tell. It's just not songs we sing. It's just not things we can. The gospel is powerful because Jesus is powerful, as he showed here. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, look at verse 36, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. Do you realize how different that was than the view of God that the Hebrews had? Oh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, others, they had this view of God that he was not particularly caring. He was sort of out there and he was mean and almost judgmental and vindictive and it was not a good view of God that he that they had and here when God shows up in the form of a man one of the key elements we see in him is compassion look I know I just said a moment ago that God must judge sin and he will if he doesn't he ceases to be holy and you are an object of his wrath if you're not redeemed and there's nothing you can do about that but he has compassion. He had so much compassion that he took the form of a man. He sent his son Jesus to live a sinless, perfect life and to die on a cross so that you and I might live. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Since, this is about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, Since therefore we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, the one who intercedes for us, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us then hold fast to our confession. For we, listen, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Oh, listen, anybody here weak? Anybody here feeble? Anybody here mess up? Anybody here, anybody here sometimes your life is like a dumpster fire? He sympathizes with us. Oh, please, let me read some wonderful words by a great Puritan theologian. His name was Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson said this, you listen, we may have to force the Lord to punish us by the way we act, but we never have to force him to love us because that's his nature. John MacArthur writes this, this must have been some news to the people of those days. The Greek gods were indifferent. In fact, the Greeks said that the number one attribute of their gods was apathy and indifference. They didn't care. The Jews had been taught by the Pharisees that God was an org, uncaring, uninterested, indifferent. Jesus brought a whole new message. Jesus, the friend of humankind, with strong compassion, moved and descended like a pitying God to save souls he loved. And still Aryan, guilty man, you could still be saved. And still his bleeding heart was touched by so many who were hurting. When Jesus had when Jesus had compassion on the crowds, do you realize in the Trinity, God and Jesus and the Spirit, they're one entity. God of the universe has compassion on these poor souls that he looked out and saw. God has compassion on you. God loves you more than you love you. 
God loves you more than you could ever imagine. God loves your children more than you love your children. He has deep compassion on every human being. The wages of sin is death. And without receiving the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, even though he has compassion, he's holy. And we must pay the price for our sin if Jesus doesn't pay it for us. But he saw them and he had compassion on them. You know the difference between the, on the good Samaritan, you know the difference between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan? You know the difference between the three? Because the Samaritan is one that stopped and helped. It wasn't anything other than this. The Samaritan had compassion. The priest and the Levite didn't. You know why most churches don't really do anything in their community? Because we don't have any compassion for people. And the reason we don't have compassion for people is we don't realize how much compassion God had for us when we were still in our sin and could offer him nothing. And we've been this wonderful recipient of his grace, not just once, but every day, all day, for all eternity. Do you understand that? His mercy was not just given to you at the moment of your conversion and now you're on your own. The scripture says his mercy is new on you every day. You wake up every morning saved because of what Jesus has done. You will be saved through all eternity because of what Jesus has done. Satan can never grab you or take you away again. You are a child of God because of what Jesus has accomplished. He has saved you. He has cleaned you up. He's prepared a place for you in heaven. You will go with him one day and be there for all eternity. We will be an immense pleasure, unbelievable joy. And listen carefully to me, church. I know some of you may be thinking, well, why doesn't he heal people today? He does on occasion for his glory, for his purposes. He'll heal when he desires it necessary. But not all, not like this, because Jesus was, Jesus was there for a specific place, a specific time, to set aside that he was indeed the Messiah. It was a testimony of his divinity. Now we have the testimony of his word. We have the testimony of all those who saw him. His divinity has been proven to us. But still, he is the great physician. And I can tell you in my 40-some years of ministry, there have been times that I have prayed for someone to be healed. And on a few occasions, they have been. On many occasions, they passed on. You say, well, that, that, that's, that's not very good prayer. Oh, listen. Listen to me. Don't lose me here. In, that, in those, few months that Jesus, those few months, those few years that Jesus was preaching and teaching there in Galilee and said he healed many diseases and every, every disease, every affliction, probably wiped out disease in some little towns entirely. But disease came back in the next generation. But let me tell you something. When that dear saint who's given his or her life to Jesus Christ... When they've come like Jairus at some point, maybe when they were six years old or 60 years old, and they literally fell at the feet of Jesus, and they really worshipped him, and they realized they had nothing to offer, and they realized death was their ultimate enemy, and Jesus forgave them of their sin, and God took the righteousness of Jesus and placed it on them. And when he sees you and me, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son, and he's pleased. And then, listen to me, when that saint who is in Christ and is suffering from some terrible disease, when he finally closes his eyes in death, at that very instant, he is healed for all eternity. Ain't no Christian going to have cancer for eternity. When you see that loved one who's racked in pain and discomfort and finally they leave this life, you know at that moment on the word of God that as Jesus pulled back the curtain and told us when, when the righteous man died that the angels came and carried him to the very presence of God. 
That's what happens. You got a little child that passed away. My heart breaks for you. Hardest thing I've ever done is having funerals for for children. You got a spouse or a loved one you've been with for 60 years and now you're alone. You're facing death yourself. And we all will someday. We can know this. We're not going to be alone at the point of our death. Our loved ones weren't alone if they're in Christ at the point of their death. The moment they died, they moved from this life of pain and torment and suffering, embraced by these mighty angels of God and taken to a place where there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more doctors, there'll be no more medical tests, there'll be no Medicare or Medicare, there'll be no more insurance. He will heal every disease. Why? Because he has compassion. Jesus has compassion. Paul Brand talks about the importance of compassion for Christians. I just want you to think for a minute about the fact that the God of the universe had compassion on people who were lepers and people who had blind and people who, had, who couldn't speak and people who had all kinds of... And, and Jesus could have just... Look, listen to me. Jesus could have just said, y'all be healed and the whole town would have been healed. He didn't even need to go to the town. But it wore him out physically. He was, he was exhausted many times. Remember when he, after he preached all day on the boat, all, all day at the seashore, he got in the boat in the midst of the storm and went sound asleep because he was tired. You tried preaching all day. He was tired in this earthly body. And even when the woman touched him, remember he said he felt the power of Gopherman. And there's a sense in which he felt that leave him. I mean, this was tiresome to him in his human form. And yet he went into these towns and villages and he touched people. He literally touched lepers. He literally touched blinded eyes. He embraced people. He stood out front of the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, and he wept bitterly with all of the others. He had compassion. He was there. He identified. I want you to know Jesus identifies with you in your pain and your hurt and your sorrow. Wherever you're deepest pain in your life is Jesus will meet you there he will not leave you alone in your hurt he will not leave you alone in your pain he comes to you in your darkest moment he comes to you in your greatest pain he has compassion on you my God has sometimes that's hard for us to teach because the world looks at the church as someplace that doesn't have compassion on anybody the world often looks at the church the same way the Hebrews looked at God or the Greeks looked at their gods judgmental and off in the distance He's not judgmental and off in the distance. And neither should we be. We should be where people are hurting. And indeed, listen to what Dr. Paul Brand wrote. Tell me about his parents who were missionaries in India. I look at the impact my parents had. Although they went to India to preach the gospel, they actually lived it out tactically by responding to the needs of people. Within a year, they were involved in medicine, agriculture, education, language translation. My mother and father worked for seven years in India before anybody came to Christ. In fact, their first conversion came as a result of their healing love. Villagers would often abandon sick outside of our home as missionaries, and my parents would care for them. Once a Hindu priest was dying of influenza, he sent his own frail, sickly nine-month-old daughter to be raised by my parents. None of his swarms or none of his swarms and groups of friends would care for his sick child. They would have let her die. I'm sorry, the child had influenza. None of his friends would have cared for the sick child. They would have let her die. But my parents took her in, 
nursed her to health, adopted her as own, and I gained a sister whose name is Ruth. And my parents gained an unexpected trust of the villagers who were so moved that these strangers would adopt this child, care for her, bring her back to health. Years later, when my grandmother was 85, long after my father had died, she helped me forge a medical breakthrough. She'd often been treated for an abscess on her legs. Distressed by the frequencies of these abscesses, she studied the problem and learned more about how she could benefit from different treatments. Knowing people's habits well, she quickly deduced that waiting in water was a means of transmission of the problem that she had. Cashing in on the trust and the love she built up through decades of personal ministry, she rode her horse from a village to village at 85 years old, urging the people to build stone walls around their shallow wells to prevent foot contact with the water. In a few years, this old lady had single-handedly caused the eradication of certain kinds of worms that were causing infection in people's feet. I wonder how effective she would have been had she simply decided to drop leaflets from an airplane that says, God loves you. Loving people cost us something, but it cost us nothing compared to what loving you cost God in giving us his son, Jesus Christ. The message for today is Jesus is the king. He is the promised one. He has the power over life and death, and that should frighten us because he can absolutely condemn us to eternal wrath as the scripture says he will but we don't stay frightened long because he has a man he is a man of compassion who comes to you and touches you at the point of your greatest need who does for you that which you can't do for yourself you can't save yourself you can't clean yourself up you can't heal yourself from the biggest disease any of ever have and that disease is sin and that disease is eternally terminal and jesus can heal you of that today and not only that disease, but I can promise you, if he heals you of that disease, you're going to spend eternity disease-free with him forever. And not because of anything you've done, but because of what he's done. And listen to me, church. If that doesn't give us compassion for people, then we've not really been saved. If we don't care about people, then we haven't experienced the salvation of Jesus. May God help us this morning, if those of us who are Christians to remember how much has been given to us and to pray for compassion. Man, sometimes quit praying for the lost in this town and start praying for yourself to be broken for the lost. Quit praying for the lost in your community and start praying for yourself to be sacrificially giving to serve those people. Pray for yourself to love people the way Jesus loves you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I've said a lot of things, but the Holy Spirit can break through all of that stuff and get right to you and you can know that you're a sinner and that if you were to die right now, you would stand before God and you would say, well, I've been pretty good. And God would have said, pretty good doesn't cut it. Depart from me. I never knew you. And that's it. And there's no second chance. But you could this morning come to him as Jer Jarius did and literally fall at his feet and say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I don't know what all this means. I'm not, I don't, I'm not cleaned up yet. I got, I got problems. I got, I got habits. I got stuff. But I just want to start. And I acknowledge my sin, and I ask you to forgive me of that sin. And then I trust you to save me. And at that moment, God does for you what you can't do for yourself. He moves you from death to life. He writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He takes your heart of stone, gives it a heart of flesh. You're a child of God. You're not perfect yet, but you started the journey. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Here's how you can do that. 
You can talk to me. You can talk to any of our pastors. There's a phone number in the bulletin. You can email or text or call any of us. Or even while we're standing and singing the last song this morning, if you just want to come and sit on this front row, we would be delighted to pray with you and talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to join this church. We have about 25 members and 80 of you here this morning, so, you know, you do the math. So what it means, we've got a lot of visitors. So what it means to join this church, what it means to be baptized, those things, to follow him in obedience because he's been so obedient to us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these two or three verses that we read today. So much is there. Help us think about them and, and, and dwell on them and meditate on them even the next couple of days that you teach the gospel of your kingdom, that you heal us of every ailment and difficulty and disease we have, if not in this life and the life to come. And you have tremendous compassion on those who need you, including ourselves. And without you, we are a sheep without a shepherd. Lord, I thank you for loving me just the way I am. I thank you that I don't have to force you to love me or beg you to love me or coerce you to love me or perform so that you'll love me. You just love me. For your glory, for your joy, you love me. Father, there are days when I have to just preach that gospel to myself. Satan tells me I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of you. Lord, may I push those thoughts aside and may I remind him that he is a defeated enemy and that I'm worthy because Jesus is worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.